Days I have held, days I have lost, days that outgrow, like daughters, my harboring arms. It's so good. I feel like it just conveys so much, like outgrow daughters, also harboring. Oh, so no. I think of a harbor and ships just coming and going, like whenever it's necessary for them, but maybe not the harbor. But I guess maybe that's just kind of a part of life is just letting things pass through your harboring arms and like having to hold them and lose them. Hi, everyone. Today I'll be chatting with William about the early poetry of Derek Walcott. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you focus on the poetry that surrounds you. Today's quote of the day comes from a 1986 Paris Review interview that Derek Walcott gave, in which the interviewer asked him about how Derek Walcott approaches writing about his home in the Caribbean and whether or not or how poetry that can be so local can also be so global. And this is part of Walcott's response. He says, I never thought of my gift, I have to say my gift because I believe it is a gift, as anything that I did completely on my own. I have felt from my boyhood that I had one function, and that was somehow to articulate not my own experience but what I saw around me. From the time I was a child I knew it was beautiful. If you go to a peak anywhere in St. Lucia, You feel a simultaneous newness and sense of timelessness at the same time, the presence of where you are. It's a primal thing, and it has always been that way. I felt that that was what I would write about. It was something that other writers have said in their own way, even if it sounds arrogant. Yeats has said it. Joyce has said it. It's amazing Joyce could say that he wants to write for his race, meaning the Irish. You'd think that Joyce would have a larger, more continental kind of mind, but Joyce continued insisting on his own provinciality at the same time he had the most universal mind since Shakespeare. What we can do as poets in terms of our honesty is simply to write within the immediate perimeter of not more than 20 miles, really. And for more about the beautiful evocations of that narrow and yet universal perimeter Derek Walcott writes about, let's go into that chat with William and me. Hey, William. Hey. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Doing good. I want to start with this strange excerpt from his long poem, Another Life. This is on page 75. Mm. And it's not the most famous Walcott poem. It's not very well known. So it's in some ways strange that I'd like to start with this. But I would like to because I think it, first of all, it's just great writing. And second of all, teaches us teaches us a lot about where poetry comes from, how to approach it, what attitudes perhaps Mm -hmm. we need to cultivate when we write it. So maybe what I'll do is quickly read it. And then I'll just, I'll try to be brief because, you know, there's a lot of poems we could go to. I'll try to be brief and then we... Yeah, then we can uh, move on to one of yours that you'd like to do. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Uh-huh. So this is from the long poem, Another Life. And it's this kind of um, book-length autobiographical poem written in these chapters, kind of yeah. memoir in poetry, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. And to make a long story short, it's just about his his childhood and youth and young adulthood in the Caribbean. He was born in St. Lucia, the island of St. Lucia, and he studied poetry and painting. He, for a while, wanted to become a painter as well. So. Mm-hmm. 
that's partly what this poem draws on, his dual apprenticeship in these two arts. And he has this friend whom he names Gregorius, who is this kind of marvelous kind of natural painter who he compares his own struggles with. So I'll just read. Um, Yeah, this is on page 75 of the Collected Poems. It has no title. It's just part two of chapter nine of Another Life. Where did I fail? I could draw. I was disciplined, humble. I rendered the visible world that I saw exactly, yet it hindered me. For in every surface, I sought the paradoxical flash of an instant in which every facet was caught in a crystal of ambiguities. I hoped that both disciplines might by painful accretion cohere and finally ignite. But I lived in a different gift, its element metaphor. While Gregorius would draw with the linear elation of an eel, one muscle in one thought. My hand was crabbed by that style, this epoch, that school or the next, It shared the translucent soul of the fish, while Gregorius abandoned apprenticeship to the errors of his own soul. It was classic versus romantic, perhaps. It was water and fire, and how often my hand betrayed creeping across the white sand. Poor crab, its circuitous instinct to fasten on what it seized. But I was his runner. I paced him. I admired the explosion of impulse. I envied and understood his mountainous derision at this sidewise crawling, this classic condition of servitude. His work was grotesque but whole, and however bad it became, it was his. He possessed aboriginal force, and it came as the carver comes out of the wood. Now every landscape we entered was already signed with his name. I absolutely just on the level of the line, adore how good Derek Walcott is at forcing every sentence and every line to be unpredictable and surprising. Yeah. I mean, for example, in every surface, I sought the paradoxical flash of an instant in which every facet was caught in a crystal of ambiguities. I hoped that both disciplines might, by painful accretion, cohere and finally ignite it's almost on a word-by-word basis that this poem is surprising me that right i can't see what's coming next like it's kind of like twisting around itself and like branching off the entire time yeah the the words ramify out exactly as you say um so instead of the reader being bored because he can see what's coming or being bored because we have heard these sentences expressed in this way before we maybe have heard these ideas before but not ever expressed in this particularly wonderfully surprising way. Yeah. Yeah. One of the words in that section that I really liked is my hand was crabbed in that style. Just like that phrase. I imagine him like holding a paintbrush because like you said, he was a painter and a poet with like a crab hand. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, that was a really keen image. Well, he's so good at metaphor. Yeah. I mean, and he says this in the poem. I lived in a different gift, its element metaphor. So he's one of the best poets I know of loading a poem with metaphors. This looks like that. This reminded me of that. His interior mind with the outside landscape, you know, or an emotion with an object or one object with another object. So yeah, right. he notices how his hand moving across the page or the canvas is, looks like a crab and it's kind of moving sideways and maybe feels not at, totally at home in this style. Like it's moving right. slowly or jaggedly or something. 
it was kind of hard for me to read through these massive poems just because of how dense they were and yes. the fact that they twisted around each other so much made it harder to glean stuff from. I feel like there's just a lot of pain that he conveys through them. I and I want to yeah, I want to kind of land on some poems that will emphasize this pain. I, I I think there's a big spectrum. I mean, you're absolutely not wrong and I would never disagree with you, but there's also there might be as much joy. It's just wonderful and dense is the word. I mean, I think you've chosen the best word and maybe we should talk about that right next. He's a very these poems are very densely packed. Right. And and as you say, if you try to read them quickly, there's a lot you'll miss. It's not just that there's a lot you'll miss, but it's like um those Jolly Rancher candies, you know, those candies that yeah. are very hard and dense right. and sweet. What's the best way to eat them? Well, the best way to eat them is to suck on them and go right. slow. If you chew them, it, it's not really the what it's they're like, designed for. Right. It's like a little like shortcut. It's like, like you could have like 40 minutes of enjoyment. Yeah. Just crunching them down in like 30 seconds. That's exactly right. You, why why crunch them down in 30 seconds when you could prolong this experience? So it's it's I don't want to give the impression that it's like, oh, you'll miss the true hidden meaning, but more right. more it's that these poems are so thickly embroidered that they des- their pleasure can be lingered on and lingered on and lingered on. They're so thick that and the fact that they twist around so much is that if you if you don't like follow the lines through like okay. twisting perfectly. And there's a lot that you'll you'll like be reading in one line. He's talking about crystals. The next, he's talking about like crab claws, and you're <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. "Wait, what?" You're right to uh, add, add this important corrective. I say that it's not that you'll miss the real secret meaning because there's no there's no secret hidden meaning that you need to decode. But you will absolutely miss simply the grammatical meaning of the sentences, which is on the surface and available to you if you slow down and pay attention. But yeah. if you don't you will be lost. Another thing I want to praise this little chunk of poetry for is how wonderfully it evokes the mystery of apprenticeship in an art form. So he has this friend who is this natural born painter and can seem to do anything. I love this. He would draw the linear elation of an eel, one muscle in one thought, right? We all know people like this who can perform whatever action it is, an athletic action or an artistic action, as if they were just born to do it totally in one breath. Right. And he's so envious of this style and in contrast, he, he asserts that his own method is like slow, he says, slow accretion, this prolonged apprenticeship, this discipline. And then yeah. he says, it was classical versus romantic, water and fire. So where does poetry come from? Does it come from the slow disciplined apprenticeship or does it come from the soul? Raw talent. Does it come from, it come yeah. from raw talent? Exactly. Right. I've recently had a conversation with a friend who was talking to me about grit versus talent is it more valuable, like if you're practicing an instrument to just be naturally a master at it versus like if you practice and work at it for hours and hours? I don't know. I think there's value in both. I don't know. There are a lot of things that people can just like come to naturally, but I feel like, I don't know, everybody knows the feeling of being envious of a skill that seems to come so easily to someone, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I also think we, I mean, we do know these people who seem gifted, you know, Mozart apparently was writing symphonies at the age of five. So this this is a real phenomenon. However, I think we always uh, undersell our own ability to catch up to such people. Yeah. I think it's possible. You know, I think if you, if you devote yourself to an apprenticeship and are disciplined and work hard, it could be no end to what you achieve. Right. 
I think you can catch up. And there are like so many different apprenticeships that you can go to. I feel like you say like devote yourself and he could have just given up on art and been like, nah, instead I want to do like, I don't know, basket weaving and get really good at that. I don't know. I am always surprised by like people's ability to learn new things that they never would have thought that they'd be able to do before. And you should be. I mean, people have this ability. It's remarkable. To add a tiny little anecdote, like, sound quite braggadocious, but let me emphasize how bad at the piano I am, okay, people? (laughs) Quite bad at it. If I have any talent at all, I think it might be this word discipline. I can commit to something, and it's quite hard to convince me to give up. So there's these Bach-Goldberg variations that I really have loved for many, many, many years, and maybe it's because I'm approaching my 40th birthday. I don't know why exactly. I just thought, I wonder if I could learn them. I took, I'm the kind of person that took piano lessons when he was a kid, hated them, didn't practice, yeah. gave up, can't play any of the church hymns, never could, you know. I'm that same person, so. So, you know, I'm starting more or less from rock bottom. Certainly, I don't have any kind of natural talent. But, you know, over the past few months, so I just ordered some sheet music. And what, all I do is, like, it takes me about 10 minutes to, like, parse three bars of music. Yeah. And I very slowly, like, okay, this hand, this hand. And then I just repeat, 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 repeat. And I've already I've already learned a couple of them. Slow, painful accretion. This is Walcott's phrase. Slow, painful accretion. And something is cohering. So some of these Bach variations for me are beginning to cohere. So for those non-Mozarts of us, you know, why sell ourselves short? If poetry is what you want to get great at, just work diligently and don't give up. If yeah. novel writing is what you want to get good at, just start now. Work diligently. Don't give up. Um, yeah. We might never be able to replicate. I mean, I love what Walcott is envious of. He says, I admired the explosion of impulse. And then he says, I understood his mountainous derision at this sidewise crawling, this classic condition of servitude. That's a description of me playing the piano. Yeah. <laughs> this sidewise crawling, I'm just like crawling right. through these these songs, right? And I, it feels like a type of servitude, but what can I do? You know, it's. I think it's better than not attempting it at all. I feel like also the sideways crawling gives me like an image of trying to like fit in or a puzzle piece into place, if that makes sense, or mm-hmm. like force yourself into something that maybe like you weren't carved for, if that makes sense. I mean, I think it totally does. I mean, I was not carved to be a piano player. Right. So I will always be a sideline, a sidewise crawler on the piano. Yeah. Walcott. I, I'm not going to say that I have a gift for poetry, but I think I am much better at it than playing the piano. Yeah. Walcott says, I lived in a different gift. And I think that that's an important word, that this yeah. is this is an ability, this is a knack that he acknowledges has come from elsewhere. Right. That he's kind of grateful for and yeah. receives it in a spirit of gratitude. I really love that. Last thing I want to say about this poem is, now every landscape we entered was already signed with his name. So it's as if his friend's paintings have changed the real world for him. You know, there's this wonderful Oscar Wilde quip, life imitates art. And we, we, we go out into the world and we see the world through the lenses of all of the books we've read and the music that we've listened to and the films we've seen and the paintings that we've seen. Walcott describing how he would look at his island now totally differently because of these canvases that his friend made. And I think Walcott is doing the poetic equivalent of this in his, in his poems. When Walcott looks at a landscape, it is constantly tinged with the shadow of Derek Walcott. Like we're getting it through a lens of the mind of the poet. Not his his goal is not objective realism. 
he wants to tell you kind of like an impressionist painter. This is the wall cut. This is the landscape via my psyche. That's why all of these wonderful metaphors between his mind and the land, this wonderful kind of fluid collapsing between the land and his mind and his, yeah, yeah. anyway, I'll, I'll shut up. Well, I think that that's the way it is with all art. I feel like all of the poetry books we've read, every one is so different from the other because we're like viewing it from yeah. the perspective of like Womanholm and Walcott and Simborska. They all have their own different ways of seeing the world. Yes. In the same way that like Justin Bieber and Mozart would see the world differently. Yes, yes. I'll, I'll add another, in response to your comment, I'll add another uh, Oscar Wilde quip. He says, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. Yeah. I think this is prime advice for artists. I teach via imitation yeah. because I learn through imitation. And I think we read in this Derek Walcott poem that he's, not just in this poem, but in lots of poems, he's imitating poets that he loves. But this is only in order to activate those elements of your own psyche and your own soul right. that are like those people that you're imitating. Like it's sort of like getting the format down on the page or like helping you to get going, but it's also like him who's writing these. It's still through like his viewpoints. Yes. So we imitate the apprenticeship is a period where we imitate and then we emerge out of this apprenticeship, not suddenly one morning, but over the course of several years, when we are able to discover who we are and what way we have of looking at the world and being true to that weird amalgamation of different imitations that you've performed over your apprenticeship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what poem would you like to celebrate? Highlighted this one. I think it has like some cool images or something. Return to Denary you're talking about? Yeah. It's on page 14. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want, tell us why you single this one out. I'm just trying we, to remember. It's probably, it's probably too yeah. long to read all of, so maybe we can just right. hop in, spend a couple minutes, and hop out. Yeah, maybe we could just read, like, the first stanza Great. of it. Yeah. Do you want to, or should I? Yeah, you can if you want. Yeah, sure. Sure. So. Okay, so this is the first stanza of Return to Dinnery, Rain. Imprisoned in these wires of rain, I watch this village stricken with a single street each weathered shack leans on a wooden crutch, contented as a cripple with defeat. Five years ago, even poverty seemed sweet. So azure and indifferent was this air, so murmurous of oblivion, the sea, that any human action seemed a waste. The place seemed born for being buried there. The surf explodes in scissor birds hunting the usual fish. The rain is muddying unpaved inland roads, so personal grief melts in the general wish. Yeah, this is a great place to go, actually, because I mean, all of the typical Derek Walcott ingredients are here. Yeah. But what stood out to you? I don't know. I think as I was reading, there were just like some like really cool images, especially that stood out to me, like wires of rain, imprisoned in these wires of rain. I feel like it gives such an image of, I don't know, atmosphere, just being trapped right. in an atmosphere. I don't know, rain is so all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. When you're in the storm, there's literally rain for like miles of square yeah. footage. And imagining that is twisting wires that are constricting you, I feel like is so interesting. Yeah, so he gives us an image that we've all seen a million times in a new way. He gives it to us in a new way, right? He puts yeah. a spin on it that is unfamiliar to us. This is very yeah. important in our, in our own poems. Uh, what else? 
I also really liked the contented as a cripple with defeat. Pairing the word content with cripple and like yeah. defeat. I don't know. I feel like content is a positive word and it's a real twist to like say, I'm content with just being destroyed. Wonderfully emotionally nuanced, if not outright paradoxical. Yeah. And again, emotions are coming into the poem, but they're being phrased in ways that we've never seen before and could never have predicted. Right. It's not sentimentality. It's so nuanced that if you just read through it without really thinking about the words, you'd probably get literally nothing from it. But like, if you thought about it, it evokes something in you. Maybe this is a good way to describe the opposite of sentimentality. A sentimental poem is over here having an experience shouting at you, look at me, isn't this experience sad? Right. A non-sentimental poem, you have to you have to partly you have to read so carefully that you are partly responsible for creating. So he doesn't say right. I was happy and sad. He 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 gives it to you in a slightly slanted way so that you feel you have to lean into the poem. Wait, what did right. you say? You have to lean in. Oh, you have to slightly work it out. It involves you. It asks something of you. The fact that you have to partially create something of it is what makes it more personal. It makes it so that you're part of this process too. And it's not like, oh, everybody who is reading this is knowing that this is a sad part of the poem. That's right. All sentimentality, literally, it's just like shoving it down your throat to the point that you reflexively regurgitate that yes. up. You want to like get as far away from what they're trying to dear you as possible. You want to rebelliously run in the opposite direction of, bro, yeah. that's, that doesn't make me sad. Great. Anything else that you'd like to praise in, the, in this, this stanza? Also the line, murmurous of oblivion. Yeah, it's so good. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's so good. I don't know. I, I feel bad for just picking out tiny little descriptions, but... Don't know. This is... That, that's exact... There, there could be no better use of time. I mean, these are poems and they're built... Poems are machines built out of words. So each yeah. tiny little in, ingredient, each little nut and bolt helps this contraption move. So this is yeah. very important. What stands out to you about Murmurous of Oblivion? I don't know. Just as I was scanning over the poem like a couple minutes ago, I realized that he uses it on the second page, first stanza. He uses the same description twice. Murmurs of oblivion of mm. action later on, too. That maybe is what made it stand out to me at first. But I feel like murmurs and oblivion are just kind of like two contrasting words. No, I feel like murmurs are so quiet and muted, whereas I feel like oblivion is just kind of this roaring destruction, if that makes uh, sense. And murmur, murmurous is almost automatopoetic. You know, it, it, it's almost one of those automatopoeia words that is, that is sounds what it means. Right. You know what I mean? So I love what you say about the contrast here. We get some kind of softness with bigness. Right. The sea, you know, what is the sea, but the sea murmurs and what does it murmur about or what is it emblematic of Of oblivion, which is either, as you say, like nothingness or this all encompassing roar that can swallow and and drown you. So, again, he doesn't say the lapping of the sea or the, you know, what are some other cliche sea descriptions, the waves of the sea, the lapping of the sea, the the roar of the sea that that's even more cliche yeah Yeah, the roar of the sea no no no. how can i give you this image but in a way you've never noticed the so murmurous of oblivion the sea not to mention the wonderful twisted as you say you said earlier in our conversation the way he has the twisting the syntax so murmurous of oblivion the sea where the the main noun comes at the end of that clause it's so gorgeous 
Also, I feel like it's like such a good description, as I was saying earlier, murmur and oblivion. It's, I don't know, it's an audi- auditorial image. Um, mm. An ocean wave comes up to the beach and like just kind of like gets really flat and reaches across the yes. sand and is kind of like fizzing and bubbling. That's such a good description because I feel like it's murmuring in that case. But at the same time, when you're at the ocean, you can just, it's just constantly deafening. Right. There's always something going on. I don't know. I just thought that was a really cool image. That We should probably talk about a far cry from Africa. So this is on page six. This is one of his most famous poems. We've yeah. had a couple very beautiful somehow lesser known poems these poems should be more talked of but this a far cry from africa is a very talked about poem i'll quickly read it and then the question that i want to bat around for five-ish minutes is so we've we've done the micro like talked about his phrasing and the way he has of making the poetry dense with images and metaphors the way he has of showing us familiar things in totally new and surprising ways i want to talk for five minutes about a macro level question and the question is how can we write politically in a way that is still art. Right. This poem tackles important political and cultural questions. And How does he manage to do it without it becoming either boring and cliche or preaching to the choir or propaganda right. or... Or just like the same as all other political messages. I don't know. Yeah, that was something that I kept noticing is he had a lot of political themes he kept bringing up, especially on the matter of skin color. He'd like make that a prominent detail like frequently when describing a character in one of his poems yes so he himself is black he was raised in this british colony so he's thinking a lot about colonialism and he was given this british education and was taught about all of these british poets so he feels extremely divided in his very being and his identity and this is this is the poem that encapsulates this sense of division a far cry from africa A wind is ruffling the tawny pelt of Africa. Kikuyu, quick as flies, batten upon the bloodstreams of the veldt. Corpses are scattered through a paradise. Only the worm, colonel of carrion, cries, waste no compassion on these separate dead. Statistics justify and scholars seize the salience of colonial policy. What is that to the white child hacked in bed, to savages expendable as Jews? Threshed out by beaters, the long rushes break in a white dust of ibises, whose cries have wheeled since civilization's dawn from the parched river or beast-teeming plain. The violence of beast on beast is red as natural law, but upright man seeks his divinity by inflicting pain. Delirious as these worried beasts, his wars dance to the tightened carcass of a drum, while he calls courage still that native dread of the white peace contracted by the dead. Again, brutish necessity wipes its hand upon the napkin of a dirty cause. Again, a waste of our compassion, as with Spain, the gorilla wrestles with the Superman. I, who am poised with the blood of both, where shall I turn, divided to the vein? I, who have cursed the drunken officer of British rule, how choose between this Africa and the English tongue I love? Betray them both or give back what they give? How can I face such slaughter and be cool? How can I turn from Africa and live? Let's talk about it in the context of this poem. What what specific moves do we see him making that help this poem escape the status of merely boring, cliche, predictable political message and 
deeply conflicted and divided work of art? I think he uses a lot of images that is something that we never really see images in poet political messages, or not really in this fashion, if that makes sense. He takes us to Africa instead of, yeah. like, a, I don't know. A wind is ruffling the tawny pelt of Africa. And then we have the long rushes break in a white dust of ibises. Yeah. You know, it's like, what, there could be many answers to my question, but certainly one is the one that you raise. It's clear that a top priority for this poem is beauty. Right. He wants to create something beautiful. Every other political message is kind of, if there is a political message in this poem, which we'll get to, I'm not actually sure there is, is secondary to the creation of a beautiful object. Yeah. Um, but then what he, but then he does start evoking political questions explicitly. And in these moments, how does he escape predictability, propagandizing, didacticism? Where shall I turn divided to the vein? You know, I have these hmm. two allegiances. I who have cursed the drunken officer of British rule. So he has some grievance against, you know, the evils of colonialism. Yeah. So this comes up explicitly in this poem, but how do these grievances become art and not just boring, predictable, political, didactic messages? I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think he still is using images to keep it moving forward, keep it personal, keep it, I don't know. No, this is an important thing to emphasize. Um, the language never becomes too abstract or generalized. So right. there, there's never a kind of thesis -y statement, newspaper, headline-y, empty rhetoric moment in the poem. Even the moments that I say are the moments where he addresses this explicitly are moments full of imagery and vivid verbs. I who have cursed the drunken officer of British rule. Right. As instead of saying, I who have legitimate grievances against colonialism. Right. No, or like he gives you a picture of this particular act, one right. man kicking another man. He also could say like, oh, instead of saying like, where shall I turn divided to the vein? He could say, oh, I don't know which side I belong to. And it would Very be good. so much less impactful. That's exactly know. right. He makes this question a question of the body, a question of the senses, right? In my, my, my very blood is divided. Right. You know, I'm divided at the vein. It's not a, a cerebral philosophical issue for me. It's an issue in my very DNA. You yeah. Know? So the lesson that I'm learning from this is whenever you attempt to evoke larger political or philosophical themes, never, rarely, or with great trepidation should we stray from the tactile, the concrete, the bodily. Yeah. And try to pick images and actions that will evoke larger issues and themes. One more thing that I'll add are the questions. You know, why is the end of this poem questions and not statements? The last character on the sheet is a question mark. And this is interesting because it means that like these are all unresolved like yes he doesn't have an answer for like, his own questions and so he's not really like expecting one from the reader i think one of the main reasons we often recoil from political political writing didactic political writing is because often it's a person who thinks he or she has all the answers saying right here are the answers so much of political writing and people like trying to prove to each other oh i know everything That's whereas right. 
it's kind of like what we talked about at the start of the unit about saying, I don't know, and like asking questions. Yeah, that's right. That's a great connection. It shows a lot of humility and willing to think things through and grapple with these very large, very difficult questions that are so massive and just work through them instead of saying, this is what is right and everyone else is wrong. You couldn't have picked a better word, humility. So we're, we're making a running list here of how to write a political poem. Ground it in, first of all, have the have the, your priority be beauty. Second of all, as you say, William, ground it in the tactile, in the bodily. Don't say, how can I choose between these diverging allegiances? Say, I am divided at the vein or in my blood. Ground it in the body, ground it in the senses, and be humble, as you say. Be you... <laughs> If you are writing a poem that contains answers, maybe yeah. take those answers out. Right. And maybe the your poem doesn't need to have answers. This poem has no answers because these questions are to some degree unanswerable. Right. So simply posing them in a particularly powerful and vivid way is enough to make a great poem. I'm convinced that he's sincere in asking these questions. He doesn't know. So I yeah. read this and I think, Oh, this is the inner monologue of a of a person who is facing a kind of profound moral quandary. Right. I find that highly interesting, as opposed yeah. to oh, here's a person who thinks he solved it all, and is condescendingly dictating the answers to me. Right. I find that much less interesting. Yeah, I kind of want to do sea canes. I told you about volcano and sea canes, but for the sake of balance, right. maybe sea canes because this is a different kind of mode. Yeah. Um, actually, you know what? Let's not do that. I'm looking at Midsummer Tobago. I read the first line and it says, half my friends are dead. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> well, maybe we should do sea canes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm fine with it either way. Let's do both. <laughs> well, quickly, right. though. Yeah. Sea canes. Half my friends are dead. I will make you new ones, said Earth. No, give me them back as they were instead with faults and all, I cried. Tonight I can snatch their talk from the faint surf's drone through the canes, but I cannot walk on the moonlit leaves of ocean down that white road alone, or float with the dreaming motion of owls leaving Earth's load. O Earth, the number of friends you keep exceeds those left to be loved. The sea canes by the cliff flash green and silver. They were the seraph lances of my faith, but out of what is lost grows something stronger that has the rational radiance of stone, enduring moonlight, further than despair, strong as the wind, that through dividing canes brings those we love before us as they were, with faults and all, not nobler, just there. As my heart breaks every time I read this poem, we don't have to linger on it very long. Half my friends are dead, as you say in the opening line, it's immediately interesting. It's immediately captivating, isn't it? Right. And it's just said so like bluntly is like a word you could use. Very good. I feel like it borders on what's the word, the opposite of like a concrete image. Like it, and no, you're totally right. It's this kind of rhetorical abstraction. This isn't a right, concrete an, thing. An abstraction, but like because it's, it's so short and so punchy, if that makes sense, I think it's qualified to like use that abstraction. Amen. I mean, He's so wonderful at combining the blunt with the subtle and elaborate. We talked yeah. in class about what Mark Halliday says, a poem, is a, lang- a poem is language spoken by someone who has a problem. And you have to have high emotional stakes if you want to write a great poem. Something has to be at stake. Yeah. Boom. 
poem begins, half my friends are dead. Something right. big is at stake. And he's like, I don't have time to faff about with po- quote unquote poetic language. I'm just going to get right to it. This is an appealing way to start a poem to me. Right. It was mostly within another life that he talked a lot about friends committing suicide and right. stuff. Just the fact that we know that other detail about him from another life makes it right. almost harder, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it makes his request even more poignant. Like, I don't want them to be changed or perfected. I want their f- vices and their flaws. I yeah. loved them for what they were. And so I don't want them nobler. I don't want them improved. I just want them there. That ending, yeah. it's just like, it gets me every time. Like, give them back to me as they were, as I knew them, right. just there. Just put them there, you know? Oh, it's so, so great. But he's like more addressing like, the earth he's not yeah mad at his friend i feel like suicide is such a touchy subject i really don't want to like brush past it or like try to like make a lesson out of his friend's experiences if that makes sense or like presume too much you're i mean you're right um about some of those biographical details but it it could i mean in this poem suicide isn't mentioned explicitly so it could just be the whole collective group of people he's lost to not just that, but, you know, perhaps age or other diseases yeah. or accidents, you know, it's just like, yeah. oh, earth, the number of friends you keep exceeds those left to be loved. So, so you're taking right. everyone that I love, you're taking in one way or another. That it's was a wonderfully global utterance. Like it's not, yeah. it's like man versus earth, you know, right. <laughs> like it's such a great tension and conflict and battle. I love the stakes. The stakes couldn't be higher. Right. Really. It just mm-hmm. like feels so lonely. I don't know. I just imagine him standing on like a very small dark planet like staring up at the stars which i don't know where i got that from but yeah i don't know it's sad okay let's quickly talk about this small poem how do you write a small poem that is a great capital g poem this poem is on page 119 it's called midsummer tobago Mm -hmm. now again i don't want to chew up tons of your time i i'm hoping we can do this in five minutes the question is what are the again i'm asking unanswerable questions which is good. That's my favorite kind of question. So it sounds like I think that there is an answer to this question, that we could make such a list. I think at the end of the day, we couldn't. But I still think it's important to attempt to answer this question. What is the bare number of ingredients that you need to to make a great poem? Yeah. What, what must be there on the page? This is a very small poem. I think it's really great. Why these ingredients, Midsummer, Tobago, Broad sunstoned beaches, white heat, a green river, a bridge, scorched yellow palms from the summer sleeping house drowsing through August. Days I have held, days I have lost, days that outgrow like daughters, my harboring arms. It's so great. I'll start us off. I mean, one answer is clearly concrete literal grounded images this is right exactly like, the first thing that struck me was the first like one two three four five the first couple stanzas are literally just only images yes broad sunstone beaches and he doesn't he doesn't have any like lead into them really he just drops them in front of us that's right a, a green river that's a whole sentence a right. three-word sentence a green river that's it yeah it's, it's not a metaphor. It's a literal river. Right. You know, su- suddenly it's there in front of us. Very haiku-like in its setup. And then a bridge. Then we get a slightly longer sentence, but it's still literal, concrete, sensory things to see. 
a bridge, right. orange, yellow palms from the summer sleeping house drowsing through August. Like, okay. Zoom the camera zooming out a bit, like right. a bridge. It's surrounded by trees. There's a house in the background, and the month is August. Then the poem adds a new so I would call all of that imagery. Yeah. But then the poem adds a new ingredient. What would we name this ingredient? Days I have held, days I have lost. I'll just pause there. What is, if we had to put a name to this ingredient, it's not imagery, it's... Kind of like personification. He takes days, which are kind of an abstract thing, and like puts them in his hand. I think you've, you've, you've put two things on the table that are important, personification and abstraction. So image, 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 right? If we're minimal, this, we're making an imaginary list here, minimal list of ingredients for a great poem. Image, clear, literal right. images. Two, yeah. some abstraction, days, you can't taste that or smell it or hear it. So it's a risk. How does he negotiate this risk? He personifies it by making something you can put in your hands, in your right. arms. I also think that like drowsing through August is very important. One of the things that I really like about him also in his poem, let's see, The Almond Trees, he has this way of just conveying warmth and heat, mm. white heat, drowsing yeah. through August. Both are just yeah. so, I don't know. I feel like the author of Redmouth, I'm forgetting her name all of a sudden. Uh, Walmanholm, um, yeah. Walmanholm. I feel like she had like a really good job, way of like conveying cold. And Oh, very um, good. She's from Minnesota. Yeah, so that, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, but... Walcott just has, I don't know, kind of going back to what we were saying, like this gift of just conveying dry, like coarse heat. I don't know. And it's, I mean, so that's important because first of all, it's just, again, surrounding us with an embodied sense of the world, which is what poems should do. But also, yeah, these, these embodied, these images, the, these, this sensory language comes with atmosphere. It comes with mood. So the drowsing through August isn't just a statement of fact, it's tinged, you're right, it's important because it casts a kind of certain shade or mood. Or like an energy. Precisely. So this this energy, this mood energy is somewhat calm, somewhat fatigued, you know, drowsing through August, kind of fatigued yeah. calm. That's the kind of energy right. of this poem, this kind of fatigued calm. Which like it important. feels very at home just those three words drowsing through august oh good just feels kind of lazy but like yeah calm warm secure i don't know it just conveys a lot that's great okay i'll I'll add so you said abstraction and personification i'll add a third just to those two lines days i have held days i have lost a third would be a sense of loss he even uses this word right so what is that if you cover up the poem so if if the poem only is Broad sunstoned beaches, white heat, a green river, a bridge, scorched yellow palms from the summer sleeping house drowsing through August. I mean, it's very beautiful. And yeah. It, yeah, it does come with this energy, but nothing really is at stake yet. There is no problem that the speaker is being faced right. with. So he has to introduce this. He has to introduce a problem. I know the sense of loss, the sense of the past that I can't regain, days I have lost. How can I even more powerfully amplify the sense of lost days that outgrow like daughters, my harboring arms. It's so good. I feel like, I don't know. It just conveys so much like outgrow daughters also harboring. Oh, so no, 
I think of a harbor and ships just coming and going like whenever yeah. it's necessary for them, but maybe not the harbor. Like, yeah, that's a great thing to say. I don't know, which is kind of sad when you think about like a father. It's so passing. I don't know. It's just really powerful. I, I've never really phrased it to myself in that particular way before, but it makes it more poignant. The sense that a harbor, it can't close its circle of embrace and keep those right. ships in. The ships, they come in and then they leave when it's time for them to leave, exactly like children. You know, we right. have them for a time and then we we have to watch them sail away. And if only we could just put our arms fully around them and not let them yeah. leave. You know, it's like the, the most perfect metaphor. It's the I mean, most perfect verb. Yeah. Harboring. I, I guess it's an adjective. My harboring I arms. I haven't had any children, but I imagine this is what it's like to have a daughter is to like have to be able to let them go. And I don't know. Yeah. Outgrow. That's an important word. Uh, you've, you've pinpointed the, the three most important words, outgrow, daughters, harboring. Is this poem happy or sad? That's, that's a, both. This is the natural course of events. Yeah. We want to trap them and keep them children forever. That would be a kind of torture. We want the ships to go out into the world, but yeah. we're sad when they do. I feel like this is a poem that just like kind of encapsulates life. He's taken the word life and like spread it out over these stanzas, but it's still like so short. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. And it says so much more than just like the abstraction of saying life. It's just so difficult, but I guess maybe that's just kind of a part of life is just letting things pass through your harboring arms and like yeah. having to hold them and lose them. That's great. It is life. That's the last and maybe most important item on our list. So just to summarize, this is a stupid little exercise. I only kind of half mean it. Art is constantly breaking the rules and defying our expectations and cannot be reduced to a list, but we must try. Yeah. So our list has images on it, concrete yeah. literal images that are clear that we understand, and images that evoke certain energies or moods. Right. And you have to introduce, I think, a little bit of purposeful abstractions right maybe you can personify them the purpose of these abstractions will be to increase the emotional stakes or to announce the problem that the speaker is facing then this problem needs to be kind of am amplified or concretized somehow again with minimal brush strokes as economically as possible and lastly as you say william a great poem i always think is a model of an entire life or an entire world it's not Yes, it, it is about one specific thing. This is about a season in a place, Midsummer Tobago. Yeah. But that is just a doorway into a room where we find an entire human life, what it means to be in the world. Yeah. So a great poem has to be universal or cosmic. It has to aim for this large of a scope in some sense. Right. And maybe not every poem has to be like, oh, this is life. I don't know. This is an important corrective. I mean, and I've said it before, and I'll keep saying it till I'm dead. There are a million ways to write a poem. Yeah. Um, there are poems very opposite to this that are great poems, equally great. But they, so they can evoke this, this cosmic sense of a life or of humanity in many, many, many different ways. Yeah. They do have to be, I think they need scope. They need some kind right. of universalizing scope. You know, so I think you're right to say life. It, it's a, this poem is about what it means to be alive. If it yeah. was about less than that, it wouldn't be as good. Right. I just I kind of hate using the word life because it's such, I don't um, know, I feel like it's 
almost a bit of a cliche, but yeah. uh, being in the world, he, the human condition, you know, it's hard. These all sound slightly cliche, yeah. don't they? It's hard to talk about, which is maybe why we appreciate art so much because it, yeah, it avoids all these cliches and yet embodies this idea, this sensation, this experience in the most right. palpable way. Yeah. Okay, well, is there anything you'd like to say about Walcott that you haven't said that you would like to say before we close up? Just one of the things that I keep thinking about, there's so much about like poets that we don't get from like the book. There are things in Walcott's life that he like puts into the book, but we might not necessarily know that. Right. I don't know. I feel like sometimes it would be really interesting to like just know more about like the poets alongside the book, because I feel like that's sometimes an important context for like what we're reading. How do you know is this is maybe, you know, we could phrase it as a question when you're writing a poem, how, how do you turn your biography into art? Mm. What details, what literal and true details from your life can or should be preserved in a poem? How literal should we be with the facts of our biographies? How important are the facts of our biographies to the success of a poem? Right. I think that it's really important to the poem that like it contains you in it, if that makes sense. If you're just writing about something that like, you didn't really do or like didn't really affect you, it's not really, I don't know. I think it's like crucial for poems to like, there are things that like. You mean, do you mean that, that there's no, I think this is what you're getting at, but you should correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there's this paradox where a poem needs the most particular and specific details it can possibly get. Yeah. And yet those particular details don't actually matter because, right. Because I mean, does it matter, for example, that Bishop grew up in Worcester that she says in that poem, I, this was in Worcester, Massachusetts. Couldn't it have been, you know, Paris, Texas. How is it possible that so much of a poem's success depends on these particular details where the, the detail many of the details not all of the details do oftentimes seem interchangeable yeah is this re, is this remotely what you're am i close to what your to your question or your concern here? i think so or maybe it's like crucial like you said like as specific details as possible and i think it's crucial that you take those from your own life because i don't know that's probably the best source material you'll ever have yeah, yeah. um first-hand experience like you don't want to you want to try to avoid like second-hand stuff as much as you can well i don't know maybe that's not correct to say but at the same time no one's gonna like want to read a poem that's like oh and then i pu pushed timmy over in second grade like um this matters uh flannery o'connor the great fiction writer says that anyone who has survived childhood has enough material to write for the rest of his or her life yeah so there, there is, yeah, we have enough firsthand information to make great art out of. Yeah. Being pushed over by Timmy or pushing Timmy over on the playground, we think that's not, how do you, who cares? This is not art. Yeah. And yet, and yet, and yet it could be. And yet it could be. You know, I yeah. think this is true. And yet if you are poet enough, I'm doing a series of podcasts for my other class, Masterpieces of World Literature. And we just, I just yeah. recorded one about uh, Wordsworth's poem, Tintern Abbey. And Mm -hmm. We're on a slight tangent now, um, but this is relevant. I hate to kind of summarize or paraphrase a poem, but one of the, I hate even using this word argument, one of the arguments that Wordsworth makes in that poem is that every moment of our lives is, he says, food for future years. Yeah. 
He says our mind is a mansion for all lovely forms. So our mind is full of these details of our life. And they look inconsequential, mostly. And they look they look mundane and banal. Yeah. And yet, I care deeply about little Elizabeth in that waiting room, looking at those Arctic coats and those knees right. and reading that National Geographic. Great poetry illustrates over and over and over again that if you zoom in on a detail, no matter how mundane, that detail can be made to appear to be the miracle that it is. It can be yeah. revealed to be a miracle. Yeah. And matter. I, I don't know. I hope this wasn't too off of your no. question. No. I think it matters. You know, I think this yeah. is a good, I think this is, you, you took us to a really great place and a good place to end. Yeah. Cool. But thanks so much, William. Yeah. Have a good day and a good weekend almost. Tomorrow's Friday. So yeah. Will do. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for the writing prompt. I don't think you'll be too surprised here. This comes directly from the quote of the day that began this recording. What I want you to do is imagine your hometown, the place that you say you are from, the place that you consider to have most substantially formed you, and then simply begin a free write in which you limit yourself to describing what that place is like within a perimeter of 20 miles. There is enough happening inside that perimeter to be turned into global, lasting, universal poetry. There's no need to look outside of that perimeter for subject matter. The only question is, are we poets enough to call it forth, and sufficiently evoke it so that it seems global and universal? This, as Derek Walcott says, is what so many great writers have done for centuries. So just start writing, get down as much detail about this place as you can. Don't stop, don't censor yourself, don't edit, don't look back. Allow yourself to write badly. Fill as many pages as possible, and most of all, just have fun. Okay, that's it for now. In about a week, I'll be chatting with a couple more of you about the second half of Walcott's selected poems. So keep your eyes out for that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great poet. <laughs>